What's poppin', y'all? Welcome back to another episode of the Heliocentric Podcast. I'm your host, Pierre, Pee Wee the Plug, Andreessen. And for all my people at home watching on YouTube, make sure you hit that like button for me. And if you're new and you enjoy this type of content, make sure you subscribe. For my audio listeners, wherever you get your podcasts, head over there and leave this podcast a five-star like. It is always much appreciated. I hope everybody had a wonderful weekend. We had some good football last night. Um, and so now we ramp up for the Super Bowl, of course, and then All-Star Weekend. A lot of good things happening for the NBA. I think this past week was probably one of the best weeks we'll get just because we had a little bit of everything. Uh, we had a trade with Terry Rozier going to the Miami Heat. We had Doc Rivers replacing Adrian Griffin out there in Milwaukee. We had the All-Star starters announced. We had a snub or two. It was some talks about what happened there. And of course, we had a scoring outburst. And that's exactly where I want to start. I want to start with the scoring outburst that we've seen over the last few nights um, in this past week of the NBA of the association where I think it started with Carl Anthony Towns. He had, what, a 64-point game, 62 or 64. Then we went out and saw Embiid have 70. And then we had Devin Booker go out and get 62. And then we had Luka Doncic go out and get 73 points. The funny thing that I'm realizing as I as I read all of this back is there's kind of a rivalry here, right? Where Cat and Embiid, which happened on the same night, if I'm not mistaken, this, this week is so much going on, so a, a lot of my lines are being blurred here, but I believe this happened on the same night. Cat had 62, Embiid had 70. They're a little bit of a rival right there. You know what I mean? They, they've gone back and forth. We saw Ben Simmons make Cat tap the ground. I remember all of that, right? This is a, this is somewhat of a rivalry. I feel like it's not as much because Embiid significantly took off. He's won MVP. He's back in the MVP conversations. He may win another one. We'll see. But there, there's been some things there. Then we had Friday night where Booker was going crazy. 29 points in the first quarter against the Pacers. He had 62. And then in the same night, Luka went crazy. He had about 40 of them things in the first half. He ended up with 73 points and a win over the Atlanta Hawks. So that's just something that I'm just picking up on now as I'm reading this thing off. Also, in these two rivalry-type situations where they both happened on the same night, one won the game and the other lost the game. And Carlton Towns and the Timberwolves, they lost that game to the Hornets, which I will say... Out of all of these, my least favorite was the Carthage Towns one. Nothing against Cat. You know, obviously he was doing his thing and it was nice to see. But I just think from a basketball standpoint and a basketball peer's mindset, the other three were kind of, how do I say, they they were just a little bit more better. Carthage Towns did his thing. But when you look deep into it and you go back and you watch, Carthage Towns, like a lot of high scoring nights, he got hot. He hit 10 threes, the same amount of threes as free throws made 10, 10 threes and 10 free throws made in the same game. So he really got, he had 30 points from the three. Um, a lot of it at some point became force, which is why they ended up losing that team to the Hornets. The difference between Booker and his loss is that it was to the Pacers, even though they didn't have Tyrese Halliburton, that's a really good well-oiled machine. Andrew Nimhard stepped up. Pascal Siakam, I think, had his best game as a Pacer. You know, the Pacers, the Pacers fight. They're they're a playoff, they're a playoff team for sure. Um, and one of the best offenses in the NBA. And then Cat and the, the Timberwolves, one of the best defenses in the NBA, one of the best teams in the NBA. Um, a team that's going back and forth with the OKC Thunder to be a one seed in the West. He has 62 and you lose to the Hornets. He lose to the Hornets, a young Hornets team who don't have Terry Rozier anymore. So a lot of those minutes were Nick Smith Jr., Brandon Miller, uh, Mark Williams didn't play in that game. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I, and it, it was just the fact that they were hunting to get Cat that ball. Cat was getting the ball and trying to do a lot. Um, and they ended up losing that game. Some big shots were made. Brandon Miller hit a big shot. Nick Smith Jr. hit the big corner three. And obviously, it was an embarrassing loss for the Timberwolves. And a lot of them got to the podium in the post-game interviews and just talked about that, you know, there was a sign of immaturity and how they handled Cat having a night like that by trying to force him to basketball, by, you know, playing around with the food and allowing the team like the Hornets to take advantage of that. And that's exactly what happens when you leave that door open, no matter how hot somebody gets. The other people that you're playing against are still professional basketball players. And if you give them countless opportunities to hang around in the game, 
then, you know, they're probably going to end up having a chance to win it. And there was plenty of times, in my opinion, where the Timberwolves could have closed and slammed that door right on the Hornets and end up getting that win. Um, For the rest of the three, why it was a little bit better and more entertaining for me, even in a rewatch situation, is because I just love it's, it's something about how you get your shit. And when you watch Embiid, because he's the only one that didn't really have a lot of three point, any three, he made one three. When you look at Embiid's shot chart against the Spurs when he had seventy, it's a it's clear, it's it's one directional path of all of the shot attempts, and they're straight up the gut. It's like a line of shot attempts, perfectly cemented on the shot chart. Again, you have the one the one three that's on the left wing which is his only made three. Everything else was in the mid-range to paint area right ahead at the top of the key, and I loved it. Pure dominance. There was even some times for Embiid, though, where he probably could have had more. I think Embiid, a lot of times, like he does, settles for those jump shots, and I understand it because he can make it, and he does make them. He made a lot. But because he was so dominant in the paint and in the interior against Victor Wimbiyama, Zach Collins, Jeremy Sohan guarded him on some possessions, I really think MB could have had maybe 80 points because once I see that uh, Wimby has no, he has no desire to guard me. There were some possessions where if you go and you watch again, you can see Wimby is getting out of there. Wimby is leaking. Joel is shooting a shot. He gone. He don't, he don't want to buy. He's not trying to get in the trenches at all to box out, get a rebound. So I know he didn't want to go down there and fight with him and tug with him. He got in his position in the stands to try to contest some of those mid-range shots. And I think he bailed Wimby out a lot because Wimby preferred to guard that versus really getting on that block and tussling and wrestling around. Because I feel like Jeremy Sohan and Zach Collins gave more effort and more fight in that part of defending Embiid than Victor Wimbyama. Obviously, Vic is still thin and frail, and uh, as the time progresses in the league, he'll he'll put on weight and build up um, a little bit more. But this is a part of the reality. Even as a thin guy, he has to be able to hold his own, um, you know, in certain spots against the Embiid and other imposing bigs um, down there in the interior. So I, I wish Embiid got a little bit more what do you what, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit more physical or or gritty or dirty down there in the post because I feel like he bailed out the San Antonio Spurs. And it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. I'm not trying to nitpick. He had 70. It was wonderful. It was dominant, which is always what I want to see from Embiid. Dominant, 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 even and especially in the playoffs. I want to see Embiid dominate. That's what I'm looking for every single time he's on the floor and I'm watching as a viewer. I want to see dominance. I don't want to see bailout. So now that he gave us that, I'm now going to be highly critical of the next times I see him and he's shooting four or five threes. He doesn't do it as much, but there's still a little bit in that mid-range where it's like, ah, you bailing him out. Zach Collins, but he's begging you to take a step back mid-range shot. You know what I mean? You're cutting the threes down, which I appreciate. And I know how physically tiring it can be to go to the post and have to bang on every single possession. I'm not saying that. He's too talented of a three-level scorer to just sit there and bang. But against some teams, especially when they're showing you they don't want no problem, which is why you shot as many free throws as you did because, you know, people don't really want to get down there and tussle with you. They just rather foul you. I really do think Embiid could have had more. 70 is still a lot. 70 is still something to tip your hat off to, especially, like I said, making one three-point shot as a big man. Um, the last 70-point big man performance was what, David Robinson? And David Robinson probably made a couple of three. I can't remember. That was that was before my time, I think. Um, but, yeah, 70 from him. And I'm now I'm kind of going into a bag while I'm ranking them, right? So, Cat is fourth for me. Embiid is third for me. Um, and Booker, matter of fact, and, no. Embiid is, se- Embiid is second because he has 70, but how they're getting it. Book and Book and Luca are just different. Those performances were just different for me. They were just different. Um, we'll get to Luca last because his is number one. What I love about Luca and D Book though, and I can I can just speak on them both because it's the same thing. They are embodying in these performances, taking what the defense is giving you. That's my favorite part. That sets their games apart from the other two. Now Embiid, you know he's a big who 
didn't really shoot perimeter shots. Again, he shot one three. So he was just he was just he said, I'm taking the the advantage of being dominant on y'all on the inside. And still, I felt like he didn't take what was given. He kind of just did whatever the hell he wanted to do. And granted, it worked. He had 70. I can't say it. I can't stress it enough. I'm not trying to nitpick his game. But I think taking what the defense gives you is going in on the inside and dominating their ass. And like I said, there were a few, more than a few shots where I'm like, eh, you just you just, you just just dunked on his ass to play before. You just bodied him up and he moved out of your way and you just dunked it. Yeah, missed tips, layups. He's getting third and second chances to put the ball back in. They, the Spurs didn't want any smoke down there. Um, Book, Book's first bucket to get himself going was a layup. The first shot he took was a jump shot. He missed. The layup goes through, and then he got going. Then he hit a three. Then he hit another three. Then he had another three. And then you look up, he has 11. And then, obviously, they started the crowd, and we take a threes away, mid-range. I'm getting back into the paint. And I think that was the difference maker for Booker and Luka, was that they established themselves as getting to the basket. In order to have these type of games, and there's a reason why these two dudes, though these are scoring outbreaks, they consistently put up scoring numbers on a night-in-night basis. Shea Gilgis Alexander as well. Um, and I'm taking out MB because he's a big and he lives in the paint area. But the best scorers in the NBA ever, if you look at it, even with Harden, um, like the scoring, ha- you have to get easy ones. You have to get easy ones. The jump shots are always going to be more difficult than a layup. And when you watch these two games, the performances from perimeter players, Luka and Devin Booker, they established themselves in the paint. They got to the bucket. They got to the cup. They didn't settle. They didn't just go for jump shots because you can always get that. Those are two guys who can always shoot a three. They can always get a mid-range jumper. But the amount of shots that they got at the basket, at the cup, layups, is what I think propelled them to have these type of games. When you get to the rim, number one, you're more prone to get fouled there. It's an easier basket. And when you go that far deep, it puts so much pressure on the opposing defense that by nature, it opens up the game for you. If I'm settling for jump shots, teams have a pattern of what I'm doing to say, okay, let's crowd up there. Let's play. And that's what the Pacers started to do. The Pacers tried to close gaps even on those drives that they see D-Book was getting. And D-Book was still going through some of those 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 closed gaps, spin moves and fakes. And then, then he started working the mid-range. All right, now y'all taking that away. Now I'm getting y'all in the midi. Now y'all closing up everything. And now my teammates are finding me because I still play with Bradley Booker and, and Kevin Durant. So now I'm seeing Kev, uh, D-Book, one of his threes, his only three that came from the wing, was off of Kevin Durant assists. Because it's like you closing the gap, so allow, allow, allow me to allow my teammates to now be used as weapons too. And I, that's what I say you take what the defense give you. They're taking away the drive, you do the mid-range. They're trying to take away the mid-range, drive all the way to the basket. They're taking away those two levels, I'm pulling up for three in transition. You know what I mean? I'm getting to the free throw line, obviously, because that just comes with big scoring nights. But that's what I looked at with Devin Booker game. I was like, I loved watching every single moment of it because you see the work that gets put into somebody's game. Everything is coming out in a night like that. You see exactly what he works on in the summer. You see the hours that spent in the gym working on this, working on this, working on it. Some of the moves that was used are not moves you can have in an every night repertoire because you don't you don't know when you're going to pull that out, but I'm working on it because there is a time where I am going to have to do that. And the game of basketball is such an instinctive game where you can't really premeditate moves. You can go in the gym and say, I'm going to work on this tween tween. But in real life, you don't know how somebody's on a real game action. You don't know how somebody's going to defend it. You can work on tween tween, but what if you tween and now the defender is taking away the other tween and you never worked on that counter? To say, oh, shit, he say, I'm not expecting somebody to take away that. It's easy to do it in the gym when there's just you in a fucking cone and you can't predict. You The cone is only going to play you in a way where you know how the cone is going to play you. But in a real game, somebody can do some shit that you just wasn't expecting. I'm taking away this. I'm taking away that. Okay, we putting him there. We sending two. 
oh, shit, they sending two and one guy there. So it's really like three. It's all of these different things that you can't really project. So I just think that was beautiful in, in Book's game, um, even though he didn't score 70 like Embiid. I just love the fact that he was allowing the game to come to him. He was taking what the defense was giving him, and he was driven to establish himself at getting the easy ones. Even when they tried to close up things, hopping over them, spin, like just just getting there and putting pressure on the defense to every aspect. And I, once you once you open up that can of worms, how can they stop you now? Now they don't dictate it; you dictate it because now they're like shit. Do we take away the three? Do we take away the midi? Do we take away the drive? What do we take away? And now when you have the defense that critical of how to play you, the ball is in your hand. Like, like literally, like it's it's all on you now. That's as an offensive player, the greatest position to be in is to have the, the defense confused or not sure about what they want to give you. They don't know what the hell they want to do. They just want to stop you. But they don't know how to stop you because a lot of times guys get high from three on these type of performances like cat guys get high from three. So now what the defense is going to do, they're going to run you off the line. Let's run him off the line and let's get him to do something other than shooting a three, especially if it's catch and shoot three, whatever. Let's drive him off off that line. And now that he has to shoot some middies or he has to drive to the basket all the way through and get contested at the rim. And now that just dis- disrupts your rhythm and your pattern because you're used to just da da yeah, da 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 yeah, or catch yeah. You take that away, and now you got it da da da, and now they cutting off the drive, so you got to step back and do a mid range that you haven't been doing, and now it just fucks up your rhythm. And now they're like, "Cool, we'll live with that." He's not a superior or superb mid range shooter anyway, so we'll live with that. But book all three levels. Same thing with Luca. I think that was the most impressive thing about Luca is that. He hit threes. I think Luka hit about eight threes, but he really got it in at the paint. And the difference between Luka playing the Hawks and Devin Booker playing the the Pacers was that the Hawks don't have anybody that had the pride. Listen, Devin Booker has 62. Aaron Neesmith in the second half played like a player with pride. And I think every team at every level, whether it's youth basketball, college basketball, NBA, you're always going to look for somebody that performed the way Aaron Neesmith did defensively against Devin Booker and a night like that. You have to have a guy who doesn't care. They just have a certain amount of pride of saying, hey, I'm just trying to get every stop I can get. He's cooking. It's nothing I can do about it. He's going to make shots, but I'm going to make him work for every single one. And I feel like in that second half, Book had to really, really work. A Book missed layups. Book missed miss, miss, uh mid-ranges he missed threes there was one with book had a wide open one Aaron Eastman was behind in the play ran all the way up court and blocked it from behind because he's that he has that much pride where it's like whatever happened in the last play that got me on the floor and even when he thinks he got a good one instead of just being like oh damn no boom playing hard fighting talking shit whatever you can do to disrupt the play and disrupt this player and say hey we're getting a stop yeah, you got 60, but you ain't getting 70. It sounds delusional and it sounds crazy, but you got to have that mindset where it's like, he got 70, he ain't getting 80. You know what I mean? Like, you just got to have some type of pride to yourself where you're going to sound, again, you're going to sound crazy. It's going to sound stupid. It's going to sound ludicrous, but it's just like that simple pride of like, yo, you ain't getting that. No, you got 55, you ain't getting 60. You got 60, you ain't getting 65. You know what I mean? You got 65, you ain't getting 70. We here. And I think that is in turn what helped the Pacers pull out a win against a performance like that. And when I watched the, the Lucas stuff against the Hawks, Luca was walking to the basket, bro. He was walking to the basket. He was doing whatever the hell he wanted to do. I think he made 14 shots at the basket. 14 shots at the basket. Um, that's almost 30 points on twos alone. Then you talk about eight threes. That's an extra 24 points. Then you're talking about the free throw line. Like, Luca was walking to the paint, and that's how he established his rhythm, by getting layup after layup after layup after layup after layup. And now he's hot. Now he's getting to the paint. He's doing turnaround mid mid-range and they're not even mid-range just turnaround shots in the pole he did a turnaround pump fake nobody committed and he was like oh and just stepped through and laid it up at the rim that was probably my the most head scratching play of the game for me as far as watching the hawks defend 
um, Luca. And then once these guys get hot and once they get into that zone or that mode of, hey, this is one of those nights for me. Now Luca is shooting the threes. And now again, like Booker, Luca had the Hawks at his hand because it's now is what I, what do I want to do? Now, I don't have to take what the defense is giving me. The defense is going to take what I give them. I want a two on this play. I'm getting my two. I want a step back three. Damn it, I'm getting it. I want some free throws now. I'm getting that. I want a layup. I'm going to get that. You start off the game taking what the defense give you, and hopefully you get such a zone and you get so hot with your heat check that you begin to do whatever the hell you want to do. You know what I mean? And then in the fourth quarter, they in the middle of the fourth quarter, they finally decided to start sending two and things like that. By that time, it's too late, man. By that time, it's too late. And all of these scoring outputs, DeMar DeRozan had a quote saying, somebody's going to get 100. Listen, DeMar DeRozan, I respect you. Phenomenal player. We got to chill. Okay, we got to chill. As much as guys are scoring in the, in the league right now with all these scoring outbursts, they haven't even got 81. We got to start at 81. Can somebody get 81? Because every time one of these guys have a performance like this, I go to Twitter and my followers can attest to it. I'm tweeting out 81 question marks. Are we getting 81? Are we getting 82? Are we getting 80? Is there some suspense? Is there some threat to even touch it? We haven't even got it. As good as 73 is, still eight points away from 81. Joel Embiid at 70. It's still 11 points away. And these dudes played. They, they played. This ain't 70 with three quarters played. This ain't 70 in 20, you know, 30 minutes. This ain't 73 in 32. Like, these dudes was playing and looking to get every single bucket they got. And they still came up very short of the 81. I know in, in numbers terms, it may seem like 81 is close to 83. But as far as NBA points, Eight points is a lot of points to get in a full game when you're like, man, I was that close. It's just, it's just like Kobe being, uh, you know, Kobe nine points away from 90. He sco- he, all of those points, and he still didn't get 90. He's still nowhere near close to 100. So to say somebody's going to get 100, I, I just think that that may be one of those records. Because, again, majority of teams are going to have pride. Majority. The Hawks, I don't know what the hell they was doing. But 29 other teams are probably going to have just too much pride to be the team in history that allowed the Wilt Chamberlain record to be broken. I would hope that there will be a level of pride. And when I see these guys do all of the stuff that they're doing, all of the shot hunting, you know what I'm saying, all of the pressing, all of the heat checks to get 70s, I I just don't see 100. I just don't see 100. I I don't see 100. And it's so tiring. It's so tiring. Wilt was a big... He was able to just get the rebounds, dunk him and think. But when you're really a Devin Booker, Luka Doncic, high usage player, creating his own shot, shot after shot after shot, I you would have to hit 23s. It would have to be Steph Curry hitting 23s or something in a game. You know what I mean? 23s is giving you 60. And then what? Another 20 free throws gives you 80. And then you have to make... 10 or so twos, layups, floaters, middies, or something like that. It would have to be something like like that. But in a sense of how I'm breaking down Luka and Book by just allowing the game to come to them and taking what the defense gives to start that rhythm of getting hot and then just doing whatever the hell you want to do, man, it's tough. It's tough. It's extremely tough. So I disagree. I don't think anybody's going to touch that record, y'all. Y'all can feel free to say anything y'all want to say in the comments. I think we're always going to get high. I think we can get used to seeing 60 performances. I think 70 ain't really earth-shattering anyone. I think we need to sit at 81. Can anybody get 81? That's our bar. Let's forget will happen. Let's just forget will's happen. Until somebody touches 81 or break his, breaks 81, we're not mentioning will. Put will in 100 far, far away. Put that high on the shelf. Nobody can reach that. Now we're putting 81 right there as the bar. Can somebody sniff it? Can somebody get a point or two away from it or get a point or two higher than it before we can even mention 100? Please. But I do think because of the pace that we play at today, because of the influx of three-point shooting, and the influx of three-point shooting means we get a lot more attempt attempts. Um, the attempt rate is going up crazy. And the most 
instrumental thing about it all. And I know a lot of people, everything goes back to defense. Oh, they can't, they can't defend, and guys can't do this. And yeah, the, it is a little bit different for sure. It is a little bit more softer in the league as far as hand checking and you know contact and physicality as far as defense and fouls and th- different things like that. But the more important thing is the space. It's the space that these guys play with, in my opinion. I don't think it's the fact that it's so soft. And I'm, No, I think it's a space. A lot of the guys that was putting up numbers in my era, there wasn't this much space. That's why some of us look at some of the scoring in today's game when you add in the pace, you add in the space, and you add in the, the attempt rates of how, how many shots are getting put up. And you go and you look at Kobe Bryant's performance of 81, just the space alone is going to be eye-popping. Just the space alone. You have very limited space to operate with in that time. With Tracy McGrady is getting buckets. Kobe is getting buckets. You know what I mean? Like, Allen Iverson is getting buckets. Very minimal space. So now you come in today's game just off of the space alone of just saying, hey, instead of being here, clogging up my areas, go here. And now when Devin Booker is cooking and they're trying to close that gap, that gap is is super hard to close, especially when Kevin Durant is right here, Grayson Allen is right there, Bradley Beal is over there. You know what I mean? It's very hard to do that. In 2003, 2005, 2006, whatever, you have a power, you have a center at the rim, block to block. You have a power forward in a 15-foot area, in a mid-range spot. Antonio McDice type guy, elbow to elbow. You know what I mean? Just just in there. You, your small forward may not be um, a, a crazy three-point shooter. He may be in the corner, but in a mid-range area. And then you may have a point guard or shooting guard to the left of you or some shit who can really knock down some shots. But really, in theory, that wasn't the thing. Now, today, you can't leave shit. Now, you don't have a center block to block. You know what I mean? Majority of teams do not have a center block to block. The Suns say, hey, Nurkic, move your ass out of the way. You play in around all over the interior, whether it's blocks, um, very rarely on a block, but if you had a crash, cool, play in that mid-range area which you swaying, but stay far away. And then four of the guys move, and sometimes even if your big can't shoot, he may fade out when you're driving for a time and purpose to go out. You know what I mean? And then rotations get scared because they see somebody and then they realize, oh, shit, I don't got it. Why am I closing out on him? It happens all the time. But I think the spacing is the most underrated part of the scoring. Yeah, the defense is definitely different for sure. Definitely hard to uh, be be physical in today's game. You can't touch anybody and nothing like that. But you you tag that along with spacing and, and a lot of room to operate with. And even if you could be physical, right? Even if you could be physical, if you have space to operate, it, it it's night and day. You know what I mean? That's the difference of playing somebody one-on-one and five-on-five is the space. The space that you're able to play with and create with is just night and day. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has allowed us to consistently see these high-end scoring outputs, whether it's Donovan Mitchell, whether it's Luka, Devin Booker, Shea can cook you, Kyrie can cook you, Trey Young has done it, like Joel Embiid and Cat Biggs are doing it. If you have game and you can score and you can operate the space, no matter if you're a guard, wing, or big, if you can operate that space, you have a night to be able to cook. You know what I mean? Tatum is cooked. Like, is Damian Lillard, Giannis, all these different players with all of these different styles, interior guys, perimeter guys, three-point shooting guys, mid-range guys, all of these different styles have cooked and put up numbers because they're able to take up that space. You take up that space and use it in the right way. It, it, how could you not score? You know what I mean? So um, I, that's my take on it. I don't think anybody's going to get 100. I think we should stay far away from conversations around 100. I just don't think anybody in a professional sport is going to want to be known as a team or player that gave up 100 points. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just pride comes into play. And I'm still waiting on somebody to touch 81. Um, outside of the scoring, something that happened over the last week that was more recent as well. That was super, super exciting. It began to just stir up another conversation in my basketball brain. Um, the Warriors and the Lakers. I, I can't. It was that what Saturday night or something? Yeah, I think that was Saturday night. Um, double overtime. 
Nothing is better as a basketball fan than seeing LeBron against Golden State, and it goes into overtime or double overtime. And um, it was an, it was another good one. It was another good one. Draymond had with like eight points, fourteen rebounds, eleven assists. Klay Thompson made timely threes. Unfortunately, he fouled out, of course, but he made some big ass shots that just put you back into that mind of when these two teams—not these two teams, but the the war the Cavs, the Warriors versus Cavs, LeBron were going at it. It just some of those shots he hit it just it's like PTSD. I remember when the Warriors had a juggernaut team, and you know I. I'm rooting for LeBron because they're the underdog and I just want to see something crazy happen. But it's like, nah. Every time they go on a run, Clay Thompson for three, bang. We know what Curry is going to do. We know what Durant was going to do. But it just always felt like during the prime dynasty years of the Warriors, Clay Thompson hit the most timeliest threes. Just timely. And that's what it felt like on Saturday. Timely, timely threes. As soon as it seems like the Lakers are stretching themselves out of the game and they're going to get a seven-point lead now and one more stop and this game is a wrap, Klay Thompson, Jakob, four-point game or three-point game, one-possession game. Need this one to go to overtime. Jakob. You know, like just, just play after play after play, and that was something that was phenomenal to watch. And outside of, you know, everybody involved because Anthony Davis had some good moments and was big for the Lakers, of course, D'Angelo Russell, too. The, the, the turnovers, back to back to back, and then to hit the pull-up three, ballsy. Ballsy. That is ice in your veins for sure type shot. And that's what you love about a player like D'Lo. Um, that's what makes him him. You know what I mean? And that was just a good, a good sign and indication for young hoopers. You got to play on the edge, man. You got to play on the edge. Scare money don't make no money. If you're too scared to take that type of shot, if you're too scared of those type of moments, you're never going to be the player that you want to be because that's how the game works. You're going to make some. You're going to miss some. You're going to have turnovers. You're going to make plays. Guys are going to score on you. You're going to get stops. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the way you have to play. The next play is going in my direction. It's going my way. I didn't get that last loose ball, the next one I'm getting. I didn't make that shot, the next one I'm hitting. He scored on me that play, the next one I'm stopping him. It's it's literally the way you have to think the game through because it's inevitable that something on the basketball court is not going to go in your way. You're going to give up some points. You're going to miss some shots. I've never seen a player who ain't never messed up. He got every stop, every loose ball, every rebound. He made every shot, every open shot. Doesn't exist. So shout out to D'Lo. Um... The main points, Curry and LeBron James. LeBron James, 36 points, 20 rebounds, 12 assists. Steph Curry, 46 points, 7 assists. He had all of the big shots in the world to keep this game going as long as it did. Um, and that was that was beautiful. And at the end of the game, you can hear um, Steph saying, how, how does this keep getting better? How do we keep getting better? You know what I mean? And I think for me... What this game does is it goes back to the conversation that has came up numerous times over the last year or two, which is the changing of the guards, the next generation of superstars to take over the game and and get handed the baton or whatnot. And when I see performances like this, it goes back to the point that I've always made. It's hard to talk about the next stars or the stars of tomorrow or who's lined up to be the face of this or the face of the NBA when we're still relying on these guys at this age to do the things that they're doing, we're still turning on ABC to watch LeBron and Steph Curry go at it. That's the highlight. That's damn near game of the year. And these dudes are in the mid-30s, late-30s. We're still relying on it. So when we start talking about the next face of the NBA, the changing of the guards, Anthony Edwards, Shea, Tatum, Trey Young, all of these guys who are legitimately these young stars. And I mean, the, the way time is flying by, they only got a couple of years to be the young stars. It's really like Luka, Shea. I don't even know if we put Zion in there no more, but some of these guys are getting older already. Some of these guys are getting past the mid twenties and starting to creep up in another year or two, their late twenties. It is happening so fast. You know what I mean? We got Wimby is young. Luca's still what? 24 years old, but Booker is starting to get up there in age. 
You know what I mean? If I'm not mistaken, what is Booker? 26? A couple years away from being knocking on the door of 30. And I'm going to just look it up for fact check. Devin Booker, age. Devin Booker's 27. He's already 27. Tatum is still young at 25. Luke is 24. But, I mean, everybody else in our league is starting to get a little older, y'all. They're starting to get a little bit older. That 25 on the 25, some of those usual guys that we, we would see all the time, you know, uh, they ain't they ain't as young no more. So the young stars is what? Shea, 25. Tatum, 25. Luka, 24. And you got Wimby. I know I'm probably forgetting a bunch of other guys, but I'm thinking of the main staple guy. Anthony Edwards is, what, 24 or 23 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Let's just look at that. Anthony Edwards' age. Anthony Edwards is 22. 22. Perfect. Perfect. Jaws, 24. Um, Chet is 21. Halliburton is 23. De'Aaron Fox is 26. So we still have some of those guys under there, but some of those guys, I also, when I say their name, I don't, I don't know if I'm looking at them as having a chance to be the face. The face of the league? Hmm. I mean, you, you hope Wimby can hit his fullest potential. You know what I mean? You, you put your trust in the fact that Luke is 24, Tatum is only 25. But I'll tell you this. This playoffs is going to be huge for that reason. It's going to be huge for that reason. Because the one thing that these young guys do have right now that's going in their way and going into their favor is LeBron, Steph, they team suck. Their team suck. Like, legitimately suck. The Warriors are potentially going to miss the playoffs. I'm not saying they I'm not saying it's going to happen as all the way through the season. We still have a lot, a lot of basketball left, but as of right now, they're not in the playoffs. The Lakers are in the play in. Durant and the Suns went on a miraculous run where they were just on point. They've lost two in a row now. And they're still like sixth and seventh in the in the Western Conference. So what's going to end up happening if this continues, those top two teams out there with the young go, the young young guys. Shea, Anthony Edwards, they may have to face some of these guys in the first round. And they're going to have to handle business. Yeah, Minnesota, if you get LeBron and them in the first round, you're going to have to handle business. That's how you take that next step of changing the guards, where you create the moments. Steph is still having moments with LeBron. We need these young guys to start having moments with them. De'Aaron Fox and the Kings played against the Warriors, and they won seven games, and it was very, very entertaining. But ultimately, Steph Curry won that series. Steph Curry and the Warriors won that series, and Steph Curry had a miraculous Game 7. Tatum had his chance against the Warriors in the finals. The Warriors won it. That 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 right there is how you, you get over that hump. Jason Tatum, turn it up and have one of those series. And they're able to beat the Warriors. Oh man, you already in that next step. That just that catapults you into a whole different thing. One of these young guys have to hit that 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 hump or that jump fast. It's taking a little too long. Jokic finally got his. Giannis had got. It, 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 it's if you can get it early, you set yourself up for a higher trajectory. In my opinion, the faster you can get it, unless you're going to dominate right now. And the parity in the NBA is just not going to allow dominance. They're putting in second apron rules where you're not going to have Golden State Warrior type teams. Um, so it's like, uh, unless unless there's an organic OKC Thunder, unless they're going to string off the next three titles in four years, it's going to be very, very hard to make one of those cases because Steph had his run. They had a dynasty. Braun had a little run. With uh with the Heat and even after the Heat, he won in Cleveland, but they had a run where he made nine what NBA Finals in a row. You you get what I'm saying? Um, Kevin Durant obviously inserted himself in that because he joined the Warriors, but even KD, KD is in a mix. You know what I mean? One of these young teams is going to have to beat KD, and I think that can set you up. Imagine if Shea and the Thunder play the Warriors. I mean, play the Lakers or the Warriors in the first round, and they hand. They kick them out of the playoffs. They get matched up with the Suns in the second round some way, somehow. I'm just making some shit up off the top of my brain. And they knock their ass out of the playoffs on their way to win a championship? 
that's a that's a that's a historical championship run. But that's how it's setting up. It's setting up where you might have to play LeBron or Curry in the first round. Then you might have to play Kawhi, Paul George, Russell West, James Hart in the second round. Or you might have to play Kevin Durant, Booker, Bradley Beal in the second round. Whether you Shea, Anthony Edwards, whatnot. You might have to play them or play the defending champion Nuggets. So it's going to be a historical run that somebody in that youthful bracket who's supposed to be up next can cement themselves now. That's how we do it. You got to create moments. You got to create legacy. We got to have some rivalries. I love the fact that Anthony Edwards and Shea is going back and forth, but that's how it lines up. You got to take these guys out because when you create those new moments, fans, media, we're going to fiend for it. We fiend for LeBron James, Steph Curry, because we had it for years and it gave us box office top-notch basketball. Y'all have to create new moments in order for the guards to change. Until that happens, we're still going to yearn for LeBron James and Steph Curry matchups. We're still going to yearn for Kevin Durant versus LeBron. We're still going to want to see Giannis versus Kevin Durant, Giannis versus LeBron. All of these different matchups that we've seen because it's given us something. But these new guys got to come in, and I think this is the perfect year. They're already winning. They're already at the top of their conferences. Jason Tatum's team up top there. Shea, Anthony Edwards is up there. Like, it's shaping up really, 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 really good. You got Donovan Mitchell and the Cavs hooping. I know Donovan Mitchell is kind of like in the Booker area where he's not still 25, whatever. But it's lining up and shaping up. And that's the way it's going to have to happen. Um, the other part that about that game was the free throws. Steve Kerr, I get it. You know what I mean? 43 to 16 is, is, is a wild discrepancy. I understand it. Draymond Green. Draymond Green is like... He has the most accidental aggressive plays that like hit that hurts people. And again, I'm saying accidental in a non-sarcastic way. I don't think he's attempting to do these things, but for some reason he just ends up in these situations. The hit at Anthony Davis at half court, he was just trying to foul him. I I, I definitely think it was just wholeheartedly intended to be a foul. He clocked him upside the head. He's guarding LeBron on the last possession before it went into the second overtime, I believe. And he's, Hitting them all in the face. You know what I mean? So Steve Kerr, that's why. You're like, the Warriors, y'all foul a lot. Y'all, that's been one of y'all things for a long time. Again, I'm not saying that to make up for 43 to 16. Because, yeah, you have a star too. You want to see Steph Curry get to the line a lot more, I'm sure. But damn, bro, y'all have always fouled and turned the ball over a lot. And with having Draymond and having a lack of size on the interior, y'all probably going to foul a lot. Y'all gonna have y'all gonna foul a lot. Y'all don't have some guy behind y'all that's just anchoring the defense. Draymond is doing his best out there, but y'all are a fouling ass team and have always been for a while now. Just my stance on that. Um, so shot shot again, shout out to LeBron, shout out to Steph Curry, shout out to the OGs of the game that's still playing at a high level. Because when I was growing up, when guys got their age, they were definitely not playing like this. It was definitely time to hang up the uh Hang up the shorts and, and, and the shoes and uh, head into retiree and get into that commentary booth. But for these guys to still be putting the league on their back and giving us these type of performances and this type of excitement, it just speaks volumes of what type of players we have. And, and I wonder if that's the direction. Are these guys setting us up for failure or is this direction of the NBA? Is this the time where in this generation guys are going to be able to play at a high level for the for the entire career? You know what I mean? Like these guys are close to 40. They're closer to 40 than they are 30. And they're playing all NBA basketball. They're playing um, all-star starter bat. Like it's no fall off. Should we get used to this? Is Devin Booker at 37 going to be doing this? Is Shea at 38 going to be doing this? Is Tatum at 36 going to be doing this? Or is this just something that we're kind of, you know, being blessed with to be able to see? So, um, yeah, man. Incredible stuff from the Warriors, Lakers, but it just puts things in perspective about the next generation and next face of the NBA. There's a lot of work cut out for these young guys, man. It's a lot of work. Other news that happened. Obviously, the Milwaukee Bucks fire Adrian Griffin. We've talked about that for a long time. Um, I don't really have much to speak on that situation because, again, that's been talked about numerous times now. But what I will do and what I will speak on and dive in a little bit is the Doc Rivers. And... One thing that I've been noticing 
is when Doc Rivers' name come up, there's a certain reaction and tone that is attached to it. And partly I understand, but there's a part of it why I think there's a little bit of an overreaction with how people respond to the name Doc Rivers when it's tied to coaching, right? We got to understand a couple of things. Doc Rivers is what franchises want from a head coach seat. When Doc Rivers is there, you have a chance. And I, as much as NBA fans and sports fans don't want to believe it, that's all your franchise is looking to give you, the fan, and themselves is a chance. Of course, they're always going to be on it if they can win a championship. They're never going to deny that. But the main thing is to have a chance. And that's why you continue to see a guy like Doc Rivers get a job all of the time is because every team he's been on, for the most part, have had chances. Yes, there's been some 3-1 things, for sure. But a lot of the stuff and a lack of success that y'all bring up with Doc Rivers is not the full context, right? I think, with my basketball mind, I honestly think Doc Rivers is the most unluckiest coach of all time. I'm not here to say he's the greatest coach of all time. I'm not saying that the 3-1 leads that were blown or some of the coaching mishaps, I'm not saying he's has no responsibility or no accountability should be on him. But I'm just saying when his name comes up and the reactions around his name, y'all make it seem like it's just single-handedly Doc Rivers fucking up teams. And that's just not what I perceive it to be. Even when you go all the way back, to when he first started coaching the Magic, right? What was that, 1999-2000? That he inherited a team post-Shaq and Penny and all of that. They won 40-something games. They didn't make the playoffs because that year the league was doing a thing, but they won 40-something games. They were they were above 500, maybe been 42-40, and 40, maybe. Missed the playoffs. His highest or his leading score was Darrell Armstrong. Mm-hmm. I know crazy right Dare Armstrong you had a young Ben Wallace on that team um just I'm just setting up to just basically let it be known it's not it wasn't a great team but they still had success in that first year right they build on that because the very next year they go in free agency they're able to pry in Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill this is where the unlucky is start to come to play you bring in Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill to do high level major things Grant Hill never really plays with the magic. He has a terrible ankle injury that hinders the duo of him and Tracy McGrady. Doc Rivers and the Magic and Tracy McGrady, they had success, but they never got to that second round and never had playoff success that they wanted. And I believe a lot of that has to do with Grant Hill. If Grant Hill is healthy, based off how Tracy McGrady transcended, I'm talking about just for one of those years. This team goes to the second round. There's no doubt in my mind. This team goes to the second round. You had the Milwaukee Bucks the first year. Um, they all go 43 and 39. They play the Bucks. This is a Bucks team that has Ray Allen. Glenn Robinson, I believe, is on his team. And you just kind of got Tracy McGrady out there by himself fighting for his life. They lose 1-3. This is back when the first round matchups was a little bit shorter. The very next year, you go uh, 44 and 38. Grant Hill plays 14 games that year. That first year where they lost to the Bucks and they went 43 and 39, Grant Hill played four games. The second year, Grant Hill plays 14 games. You lose to the Hornets 1-3. This is the Baron Davis Hornets. Um, very tough, tough series. I mean, Tracy McGrady was balling out of his mind. And they, oh, man, 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 man. I'm talking about you go, go. I encourage y'all to go back and look at some of those series. Just, just, just for uh, Tracy McGrady's sake. You look at some of those games, and I mean, Tracy McGrady got 36, the next guy got 12. <laughs> like, literally, when you talk about being out there by yourself trying to backpack some shit, that series in specific, like, is it. Tracy McGrady is out there fighting for his life against the Hornets and getting no support. Um, and then the following year, Grant Hill played 29 games, but they lose in seven games to the Detroit Pistons. Seven games to the Detroit Pistons. Another series where Tracy McGrady's was absolutely phenomenal. But even a series like threat like, like that with seven games, man, you telling me if Grant Hill is playing in those games, they don't win one more of those night those games? I know it's all what if and hypothetical, but damn. Another un- unfortunate thing is a Tim Duncan situation, right? And there's been multiple stories on this. 
Tim Duncan was supposed to join Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill. It's two accounts. Grant Hill tells a story where back then there was a rule where significant others couldn't fly with the team. This wasn't shocking. This wasn't breaking news. This was a league thing. I know today when we see the whole family on the private planes and the players are using a private plane. Back then, this is 2000. This is two that this is 20 plus years ago. That was not what was happening in the NBA. You got to understand this is not what the NBA was not as rich and um, as big of a money maker. Money wasn't how it is now. When you, that's why the contracts don't look the same. So, yeah, they're probably significant. Others wasn't doing that. Grant Hill tells that story and says that him and his wife went to the hotel and his wife was like, yeah, they're not coming. Her, her Tim Duncan's girlfriend body language changed after that. that and that, that's kind of like a, you know, you can take that to, to however you want to believe that. It sounds good. It sounds juicier. But Tim Duncan has never confirmed it. And it's like, damn, his girl body language being different is that that's what stopped him from going somewhere. Doc Rivers tells a story where he says, and this sounds more believable to me, makes more sense to me. But it's just me and my thoughts and my opinion. Believe whatever you want to believe. He tells the story of this. He says they do all of that. They're recruiting Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan comes to him and says, I'm pretty sure I'm coming to Orlando. One thing is, I have so much love for Pop. I'm going to go back and I'm going to let him know and I'm going to talk to him. And you know what I'm saying? But I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a magic player. John Calipari, one of the greatest recruiters ever. Ever. One of the greatest recruiters ever somehow gets on the phone with Doc Rivers, asks him how it goes. Doc Rivers like, yeah, it went good, man. I think he, we got him. He, he told me himself he's probably he's he's, he's probably going to be Orlando Magic, except he has to go back and talk to Pop. And John Calipari right there says, you just made a big mistake. The biggest mistake y'all made was allowing him to go back and talk with them or say his goodbyes. However, Tim Duncan tried to sauce it up. Because he probably thought, hey, I'm going to go there. I'm going to let them know. I'm going to do the right thing. And so they ain't blindsided and let them know, hey, yeah, I am going to go to the hall. Uh, I am going to go to the the magic just to let y'all. First class shit. Not, what we expect of Tim Duncan. First class shit. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them because I got love for them. They're my people. I'm out. But I don't want them to find out through my agent. I don't want them to find out through ESPN. I don't want to call them and tell them. I'm going to tell them like a man. In his face. Let them thank him. Calipari say, hey, man, you're tripping. You don't, you don't let Pop and them get that lag. That's all he knows. So he goes back and he thinks he's going to say goodbye. And then Greg Popovich meet with him. David Robinson ends up cutting his vacation short. He joins Popovich in a meeting. And he's telling him, he's begging him and pleading him, yo, we can win more. Trust me, we can do this before my back go out. And what ended up happening is, of course, he end up, they end up convincing him to stay. And that's Doc Rivers' story. And that sounds... Way more realistic than a fucking plane thing. The plane thing was probably like, damn. But if the plane is really a deal breaker, what the fuck are you in it for? And that just that doesn't line up with who Duncan, uh, Tim Duncan has ever been. A guy who's trying to win and do shit at a high level. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, like that don't match Tim Duncan. And my and my image of Tim Duncan and everything I've known him to be, the fucking plane sounds like some shit that would be the last thing on his fuck is mine. To be honest with you, um, and history history is is great. But it worked out. Tim Duncan made the right decision. I think he probably could have won with T-Mac a healthy grant for sure. But his Spurs legacy, it lives on as one of the greatest ever. And they did something special and his, his career prolonged. And they built something around him that was stable. Greg Popovich still coaches the Spurs. The, the guys still go to the games. Duncan was on his coaching staff for a while. Manu was just at the last couple of games that we saw, even with the bat mysteriously coming out of nowhere. Um, so everything happens for what, but that uh, again, unlucky type shit to be able to have a team that's about to acquire Grant Hill, Tracy McGrady and Tim Duncan. And then like in today's world, what would happen is they probably sign Duncan there. Keep it hush, hush. He goes, tell them I'm out. I already, I'm out. when they start convincing, I already signed it. It's like I already, I already signed the contract. You can't convince unless you're going to do the 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 uh, DeAndre Jordan shit where you 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 kidnap him and you kidnap him and stop him from signing with the Mavericks so you can retain him. But you know, um, and shit. Now that I think about that story, is that why that happened? Doc Rivers like, yo, I got experience with this. 
Tim Duncan told me he was going to stay and he was going to sign. So fuck that. DeAndre, we, we don't care what you told the Mavericks. You ain't signed, did you? All right, well, you ain't got to go. You you with us. You with us. Until you sign that paper, he probably had experience. That makes sense. That makes sense why the DeAndre Jordan shit happened the way it happened. Because Doc Rivers had a lot of experience in that where he was probably like, hey, as long as you don't sign, it's good. You know why I know? Because Tim Duncan looked me in my eyes and said he was going to be a magic. And then two days later, he was a Spurs still. So um, I say all that to just continue to go on the pack. Very unlucky. Um, then the last year with 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 Orlando after three four loss to Detroit, where Grant Hill played twenty nine games, they go twenty one and sixty one. They start off the season one and ten under Doc. He gets fired eleven games into the season. This is also the last year T Mac played for the Magic. They traded Mike Miller and they off. They, they did a lot of shit in the offseason that kind of pissed Tracy McGrady off. And I see why because they they started off very stinky and Doc Rivers got fired and you eventually have to trade a disgruntled Tracy McGrady. That's how that ends. Doc Rivers goes to Boston, um, immediately turns them into a playoff team. Then they miss the playoffs the next two years. They make the big trades. They win a championship. They fight for championships and have chances for the next few years. They lose to Dwight and them in the Eastern Conference Finals. Kobe and them win a championship. They go back and get the rematch in the finals. They lose to Kobe and the Lakers again in seven games. And then they, you know, stay afloat, stay competitive. But then LeBron James and the Miami Heat form, and that becomes very tough for an aging Boston Celtics to compete with. Um, and in his next tenure, the Clippers. The damn Clippers. He inherits them. They go 57 and 25 in his first year. To me, looking back, I think this was their 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 greatest chance to win a championship was the first year in, in, in Los Angeles. They lost 2-4 in the second round to the Oklahoma City Thunder. That was their best and biggest chance to win a championship with this core, the Lob City era. Because you're, you're going to see this trend. The second year, they face the Rockets. I think this is the second round as well. They lose in seven games. CP3 got hurt. Right here, here it starts. CP3 gets hurt in that series. That's when they blow a 3 1. Uh, people always talk about that 3 1, 3 1. They don't say that CP3 got hurt. You know what I mean? Like that's a that's a, that's a big part. That's a big part. This team is CP3 and Blake. If we just being completely honest, I know it's still crazy to lose three one no matter what. You can't just get one. But CP3 was the driving force behind his team. Cool. Even if you want to fault Doc Rivers for the three one, I'm not mad at it. But CP3 got hurt. The next year you lose two four in the first round of Portland. Why does that happen? Because CP3 and Blake got hurt. The following year with the Jazz, you lose seven games in the first round. You know why? Because Blake Griffin gets hurt, and you're out there with just Chris Paul. And then you start to see changes happen where they move on from Chris, and then it's just Blake, and then Blake eventually gets hurt. So then they trade Blake to Detroit, and then you inherit the young, um, upbeat Clippers that has Lou Will, Pat Bev, Shea Gilders, Alexander. They drafted, and they fight against the Warriors in the first round. They, they take the Warriors to six. A, a series that they had no business being in, to be honest with you. Um, they had no business being in that series at all. And then you get Kawhi and Paul George, and the COVID shit happens, and they lose 3-1 in the playoffs against the Nuggets, and you got the playoff piece shit and all of that. Again, not saying it has nothing to do with Doc Rivers, but that playoff piece shit, it, I, I don't know too many coaches that's winning with that type of performance. I'm just being honest. And Paul George is my man's. But just being honest, I don't know too many coaches winning with performances like that. You go then to Philadelphia. Obviously, off, the, off of the rip, they're a playoff team. They go 49-23. and 23, And that's the year they lose to the Hawks in seven games with the Ben Simmons debacle. When Ben Simmons passes up the dunk, and psychologically, he has not been the same. It's not. This is an all-NBA player, all-defensive guy, on his way to being a perennial all-star guy in all the, uh, one play, and we've never seen him the same. One play. One play. I'm, I, like, you can't get more unlucky than this as a coach. And then uh, the next year, they end up losing to the Miami Heat, I believe, in the second round. This is the year with Harden. Um and B misses two games in that series. Would they have won that anyway? I don't know. But and B missing games doesn't help. Then the last year with Harden, um, three four 
against the Celtics in seven games. That would have been a big one. Um, you still won the game, the first game of that series with no Embiid. But in the last game, game seven, your two stars combined for 24 points on eight of 29 shooting. Again, like Paul George shit, I don't know a coach that's winning with Joel Embiid and Harden going eight of 29 from the field. You slice that up and you use Doc Rivers as a scapegoat all you want. Eight of 29 is not winning Phil Jackson a fucking game. Eight of 29 combined shooting from James Harden and Joel Embiid is not winning. I don't give a fuck who you think is the greatest coach of all time. That's not winning them a game. And again, I'll go back and say it. Everything that I'm saying is not to say it has nothing to do with Doc Rivers, but it's just to shed light on the fact that when his name comes up and he's getting coaching opportunities again and y'all sit there and act like y'all have no idea why, that is why. All that shit that I read, there was a lot of winning in that. Was it the championship? That happened once 16 years ago in Boston. But every single team, besides the Magic, because Grant Hill never fucking played, they had a chance. Even after they won in Boston, they went to the finals again. They was in the Eastern Conference Finals. You know what I mean? They had to play against the big three Heat. That was a big, strong monster. But they were still there competing. The Clippers, they were winning. Winning. Top seeds hearing it, winning. You get to the postseason, and every single year except the first year, you have one or two of your best players hurt. 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 That was the downfall of the, the Lob City Clippers. It ain't because they couldn't find a small four like we like used to think about. Like, oh, man, what if they, they just couldn't find that perfect three? No. Blake Griffin and Chris Paul could not fucking stay healthy when it mattered. They couldn't. They could not. Couldn't stay healthy. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. So that's why. And again, I'm not here to, to, to tell you or convince you that Doc Rivers is the greatest coach of all time. I'm not saying you can't be critical of him. I'm just here to answer the question. That's why Doc Rivers got another chance to coach. That's why, depending on what happens after this, he may get another fucking chance to coach. Doc Rivers gives your team an opportunity to win a championship, especially when you have the pieces there for them and they're healthy. You're going to get a chance to win it. At some point, though, players are going to have to elevate. Doc Rivers will have to make certain adjustments. But that's just the game of basketball. When you lose, people say all type of shit. You should have made adjustments. When a player misses the game with a shot, he should have spent. He should have kicked it out. He should have pumped fake. But when he makes it, there's nothing to say. When a coaches win, there is people act like they made every single adjustment. That's not always the case. There's coaches who didn't make who didn't make significant adjustments that you would think, and they still were able to win because it's like, okay, my fucking player started playing better. Do I need to make an adjustment, or is my neck is my player going to not go eight of twenty nine? What adjustment do you make when your when your two star players are going eight of twenty nine? It's not one you can make. Um. That's my spiel on Doc Rivers going to the Bucks. The only thing we have left in this episode, which I'll leave really, really quick because y'all have heard it a thousand times, the all-star starters. I agree with everything except the Dame one. I'm going to just give it to you straight. And, yeah, I'm a Knicks fan, but it has nothing to do with Jalen Brunson. I, I honestly, in my ballot and my all-star starters, were the exact same except I had Donovan Mitchell there. The way Donovan Mitchell has been carrying the the Cleveland Cavaliers while Evan Mobley and Darius Garland has been out has not got enough love and has not got enough applause. He has been playing at a high level. So I don't see Damian Lillard jumping over him. I don't put him over Brunson for that starting spot, and I don't put him over Tyrese Maxey. You have three viable options who should have been started. Am I going to sit here and make a fuss about it? No, because at the end of the day, the fan vote did it. The fan vote it was is what got him there. And if that's what the fans want, then cool. Let them have it. I don't know how they do to fix that. I don't know if the fan vote should be as strong. I don't know if you should have three-time voting days and shit like that. I don't know. But at some point, shit like this got to stop happening. At some point. At some point. That's just, that you know, that's just my opinion. Um, we've been in here for an hour plus. I don't want to hold y'all too long. I know it's Monday. There's a lot more shit we got to get geared to for this week. Um, the trade rumors and the trade market is heating up. We probably are going to have some more scoring outbursts. I don't think it's going to slow up no time. Once, once it's in the air, it gets in the air. Um, 
who are the, the the Miami Heat has lost six six games in a row quietly. The Knicks are the hottest team in the NBA with six six straight wins. Um, Keegan Murray, man, Keegan Murray defensively is I'm starting to see it. I'm start I'm I know it's, it's been happening. But I don't watch every single Kings game. The the most recent game that I watched, I think it was against the Warriors. Keegan Murray, I'm watching you, man. I got to I, I got to show some love to Keegan Murray with the defense. I have to. We did our our midseason awards on numbers on the board, and I had mints, and I forgot to show some love to Keegan Murray for what he's been doing on the defensive end of the basketball. Um, I was able to give Jalen Suggs some love and some flowers for his defensive input. But, yeah, man, that's where we at. College basketball starting to heat up, too. Make sure y'all tuning into that. We about a, a month and some change away from uh, March Madness. So if you want to start getting some ideas of what's going on for your bracket and all your betting that you're going to do come March, Make sure you start watching right now as we enter tournament uh, or conference play. I'm sorry. As we enter conference play, you'll start to see who is who and who do who does what. Um, as always, I am Pee Wee the Plug. This Pee Wee the Plug channel is all basketball. Make sure you locked in on this all throughout the week. You'll have videos and content about what's going on around the league, whether it's trades, whether it's scoring outbursts, whether it's a player breakdown you may get soon. Who knows? But all things NBA, all things basketball here at Pee Wee the Plug. I am your host of the Helio Central Podcast, Pierre, Pee Wee the Plug, Andreessen. I will see y'all next week. I'm out. Peace.